Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. To my regular friends, hi, how are you? Hope you're doing well. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. As always, let me just ask that if you find after watching this that you learned something or enjoyed it, please just do me a favor and smash the like button. Also, consider subscribing. Now, let's dig in. Defendants like Brian Koberger, who is charged with the murders of four college students in Idaho, and Rex Huerman, an alleged serialist, charged thus far with three women's death may very well face the death penalty, and if convicted, they will go to live on death row. There, they will typically wait many years before they actually face the death chamber. Thus, they will live knowing that one day, barring them dying from natural causes, they will be escorted to that scary room and be subjected to, well, their own death. But before they reach that chamber, they will live in this place called Death Row. Ever wonder what it's like there? Well, today I'm going to give you an idea. Obviously, this is not from my own first-hand experience. Thank God. I want to tell you how things went down for a man named Anthony Graves, who when he was 26 years old was convicted in 1994 of doing in a family of six in 1992 in Somerville, Texas. Graves was convicted not based on physical evidence, but rather on the testimony of a guy named Robert Earl Carter, who would later admit he committed the crime alone. Graves actually never made it to the death chamber part, thank goodness, because he was exonerated in 2010 after spending 18 and a half years for a crime he didn't commit. 16 of those years were spent in solitary confinement, and 12 were spent on death row. Carter, the actual perpetrator, was done in by the prison system on May 31st of 2000. He did go to the death chamber. Anthony Graves was twice scheduled for a lethal injection before he was exonerated. When he arrived at death row on November 1st of 1994, he was greeted by a female guard standing on top of a green tower with a pistol on her hip and a rifle in her right hand. She sounds like a badass. The guard hollered down to the officer, bringing Graves to the gate. She yelled out, you're in the wrong place. You've got to run him over to the diagnostic unit. They'll process him there. Graves said that processing only took a few minutes. Agents asked him his name and some other questions. And a few minutes later, he returned to the Green Tower. The officer who brought Graves there placed his gun and some paperwork into a plastic bucket that was attached to a rope. The lady up on the tower pulled up the officer's supplies. It sounds so rudimentary, almost like Game of Thrones. Then the gate opened and three officers placed their hands on Graves. They allowed him to walk at his own pace toward death row. Now Graves tried to drink in the scene. He said there wasn't much to behold, but that it was very intimidating. He described it as like stepping back in time a few hundred years. In his mind, it conjured images of slave traders transporting men and women from Africa to slave marts in cities like Charleston. 
When he got to a pen, he was told to step inside. There he was strip-searched in case he managed to bring a weapon with him. He stated that at that point he was so used to these searches that they had almost become routine, even though they were still humiliating. He said his mantra was, stand there, do whatever you're told, and he mentioned having to move his private parts around. Not something I want to think about right now or ever. Next, an officer handed him prison clothing. It consisted of a white jumper and a white pair of cloth slippers for his feet. He then got a haircut and a shower. Once he was all clean and scrubbed, he was taken on a short ride to Ellis One Unit, and that's where death row inmates live. Graves said that life on death row is a torture all of its own. He found himself living in a six by nine foot cage. So six feet is like the average height of a Christmas tree, and nine feet is maybe the height of a patio umbrella to give you an idea of the dimensions. That's not a lot of room. In that cell, Graves had to do his business in a steel toilet that was in plain sight of male and female officers. I have nightmares about this kind of thing. I wouldn't last even a minute in prison. The officers ended up giving him another change of clothing for some reason before he entered death row. After that, he was handcuffed and led down a long corridor toward death row. He said the prison buzzed with energy. At this time in that prison, the inmates were able to come and go. Graves said that some stood around, though so this was in the general population section of the prison, what they normally call gen pop. The officers then yelled at some of these inmates and told them to turn around and face the wall. They didn't want them looking at Graves. They told them this was for his own protection. Then at the very end of the hallway was a gate with a sign that said, Texas Death Row. At this point, Graves said he felt fear and thoughts of his family flooded his mind. He said that when he crossed over the threshold, it was hard for him to believe that he'd ever make it out of there and get back to his family. A police captain sitting behind a desk sized him up and then gave him a handbook to read. The handbook explained the do's and don'ts of death row. The officers put Graves in wing J23, which was right in the middle of known gang members. Thanks, guys. The captain explained to Graves that he would be spending 22 hours alone in his small cell. On the weekend, he would have to spend 24 hours in the cell because many officers always took the weekends off. And to save money, the prison reduced manpower and kept the prisoners in their cells all day Saturday and Sunday. Graves joined 500 other men there, all waiting for the state of Texas to do them in. He said his cell doors had bars and wire. As Graves looked around his cell, he heard his neighbors hollering. Every inmate seemed to have something to say. One guy wanted aspirin, another screamed for a sick call request, some asked an inmate from general population known as a trustee for newspapers, magazines, and food. Trust are like couriers who move items from cell to cell out of view of the prison personnel. Graves said his neighbors would bet with each other on the outcome of sporting events on the television. He said that they bet on every single play with whatever currency they bartered for. Graves said, quote, death row was alive with men doing whatever they could to stay sane. So this was their entertainment, just betting on anything and everything. When the guards 
slammed his cell door behind him. Graves said the sound cut through all the other noise. He then put his hands through the bean slot, which is that little horizontal opening that is used for meal delivery. And that's when the guard removed his handcuffs. Now his cell had no windows. The only light that filtered in was from small windows out in the hallway. The cell itself was absolutely filthy. There were wet pieces of toilet paper and trash on the floor. Very different from your Marriott Inn hotel room. The toilet was covered with poo, as in poo-poo. Clearly, the officers don't clean the cells after one inmate moves out and another moves in. Note to self, Neverland in prison? Sounds like absolute hell. Graves said he was already missing home at this point. And he also stated that he was missing physical intimacy. I'm not going to say get jiggy anymore because some people don't like that. They feel like I'm mocking the situation. I was just trying to find a way around saying the actual terminology. YouTube doesn't like it. Okay, so prior to landing on death row, Graves had been incarcerated for two and a half years. And all that time he hadn't had any physical intimacy. With some powdered soap he'd been given and a rag, he set about cleaning up all the crap. Literally, the other guy's crap. It didn't take him long, though, he said, to clean the very small cell. He scrubbed the floors, and after about 20 minutes of this labor, he was really hungry. And just then, an officer and one of those trusty people brought him his first meal on death row. Chicken and dumplings. Sounds pretty good, right? The way Death Row served this dish, he said the chicken must have been of advanced age. Something passing for juice accompanied the meal, which was offered in a plastic bucket. Two bites into the dish, and Graves said he couldn't eat anymore. It was so bad that he decided he'd rather go hungry than eat that. He turned toward a thin blue mattress on his steel bunk bed. The mattress was some kind of plastic that he said would stick to his skin when the temperatures rose. He lays down and he puts on a pair of headphones. And the headphones allow him to listen to the television in the distance or to a radio station. And they also make things quieter. Graves said that music gave him some semblance of peace. He said he'd pull a blanket over his head at that point to escape. And when he first got in there, he said he spent the first days lying on his bunk with his headphones on, checked out. He said he didn't want to talk to anyone or make friends, and the food offered no distraction. This sounds a lot like what we heard of Rex Hewerman the alleged serialist, when he went into the jail after being arrested, he just laid on his bunk for days, didn't communicate with anybody, didn't read anything. So maybe that's a normal reaction. The next week, Graves' mother came to visit him, and he said it was hard to know what to say because he'd been given the death penalty. He told her he was okay, and he said he needed to reassure her that people inside weren't trying to constantly do other people in. 
his first trip to the notorious shower went better than expected. He said a beautiful black woman approached his cell, she was an officer, and asked if he was ready to take a shower. So he walked to the showers with her, wearing only boxer shorts and socks, and with a towel and some soap in hand, he walked his way down there. His hands were cinched behind his back. The female officer came in and she sat on a trash can and he said she pretended to look the other way while he showered. When they walked back to his cell, the other inmates were catcalling to the female officer and she apparently was not amused. Graves found out that this officer was trafficking in all sorts of contraband for prisoners. Inmates paid her hundreds of dollars to deliver cigarettes and weed. One guy even arranged for her to bring him $500 from a friend on the outside, but she actually took the money for herself. Those sorts of deals could be dangerous, he said, even for female officers. Yeah, I, I would think so. Some of the men on death row were there specifically because they didn't discriminate in their crimes between men and women. He said his trip to the shower was the last bit of meaningful time he spent with that officer she soon transferred to another unit. Graves said being with a woman was a constant thought for him and for the other inmates. Lucky for Graves, he was exonerated and the prosecutor in his case was eventually disbarred for misconduct. Texas even had to pay Graves $1.45 million in compensation for the damage the state had done to him. I think he should have gotten more for that. Personally, that's a hell of a lot of time to spend in prison, 18 and a half years. So that's where Graves ended his essay. He now works at the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, and he's really turned his life into something meaningful. So a somewhat happy story, I guess, out of death row. This is why some people don't like the death penalty. You've got to be sure that you've got the right person before you actually go through with that. A little food for thought. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories.